Those of us that are remaining, I would invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. As we continue to work our way through this mission-oriented and sometimes unusual book of the Bible. Our text this morning will be chapter 7, the entire chapter. So if you would please stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord. This is the very word of God. It is sufficient, it is authoritative, and it is completely infallible and inerrant. Hear now the word of the Lord. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful. And in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourselves too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, 
the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this, your word, that you would indeed work it in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It seems nowadays that everyone that you come across needs some form of eyeglasses or eye correction. It's a good chance that if you see someone who's not wearing glasses, they have contacts, right? Or they've had some form of surgery, whether it's uh, LASIK or whether it's cataract surgery, that allows them to then see perfectly. In the years that, that I've lived, it seems that almost everyone I come across now has some form of eye correction. And there's one thing that I dread about going to the eye doctor to get an exam. It's not the little puff of air that they hit you in the eye with. It's not even the drops that make your pupils go big, although that's really annoying. It's when you're sitting in the chair and the eye doctor has those lenses and they go, okay, now tell me, better or worse? And I'm thinking to myself, this is kind of like a test and I'm going to fail this. And inevitably they go, better or worse? And I say, you need to do that again. You need to do that again. Or I will say, I think number two. I'm not really sure, but I want to be sure because I know if I say better, the doctor's going to assume it's better, and I'm going to wind up with glasses like that for the next two, three years. And I don't want to have bad glasses or bad contacts because then it's hard to see. But there are other, there's another thing that happens sometimes when you go to the eye doctor. Sometimes it's not better or worse. Sometimes they click it and you say to yourself, wow, everything's really clear. The colors are so bright. It's not just that you can see a little bit better. Everything looks better, doesn't it? When you hit just that right prescription. You see... We need to be able to see the world around us. And sometimes we're not sure whether when we're doing something it's better or it's worse. And so that's why we come to the world through what John Calvin called the spectacles of the scripture. You see, the Bible is the Christian's eyeglasses. It counterfects all of the difficulties of sin. By looking at the world through the Bible... We have the right prescription to see what life in the world is really like. And so Solomon continues to show us here what is going on in the world to provide us with good spectacles, with glasses, so we can see, so we can have first a clear view of the world around us. And then secondly, we can have a clear view of life and its meaning. And then finally... Because it's not sufficient to see clearly what's going on out there. 
and in life, Solomon provides us with a clear view of ourselves and that to help us by means of God's word. So let us then first look at a clear view of the world. This chapter, at first glance, seems to be kind of mishmash, doesn't it? It reminds us of Proverbs, I think. If you have a Bible that has sort of versification, up through verse 13 you've got almost lines of poetry. And they don't really seem to go together. It's like, well, there's a proverb here and a proverb there and a proverb over there. Well, I can tell you, that makes it difficult to outline a passage as a preacher. But I think there's an overarching thing that Solomon is trying to say here, and it's actually set up by what we looked at last week in verse 12 of chapter 6, where Solomon says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The question is, who knows what is good? And after a brief pause, Solomon answers, God does. Let me tell you what is good by God's word. And the first thing that he says is something that seems odd. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, we listen to that verse and we think, what is Solomon saying here? A good name? Does he mean it's better to be popular than to have, like, really good Vaseline? What's he talking about here? Is he talking about, am I supposed to, I'm a man, am I supposed to be wearing some perfume? What's going on here? I think we need to kind of delve in for a minute and see what Solomon means by a good name and precious ointment. The first thing that we miss a little bit of is that this is kind of a play on words. The two words for name and ointment in Hebrew are almost alike. And you get a little bit of a sense of it. One commentator has said it this, that a name is better than nard. You've heard of nard, that biblical fragrance. Or how about this, a fair name is better than fine perfume. You see, it's a play on words. It's a classic example of the inner reality being more important than the outer reality externality. You see, a name is not just a label. It's not just popularity. This is not just a good name that could come to someone who is undeserved. No, this is the biblical concept of a name showing the character of a person. Right? We see this all the time when people are named, especially in the Old Testament. Adam names his sons certain names for a reason. Abraham calls a son Jacob for, or excuse me, Abraham calls his son Isaac for a reason. Because his wife laughed. Isaac calls his son Jacob for a reason. These things are to reflect character and inner reality. You see, this is even in a sense true of God. Nehemiah chapter 9 tells us that God got himself a name. Because of the exodus. And of course in the book of Revelation we see that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is faithful and true. You see names in the Bible are there to tell us what the character of a person is like. And so what Solomon is saying here is that it is much better to have good character. To have something that reflects inner reality than outer beauty. 
Because you see, ointment was something more than just made you smell nice. You recall the incident in the Gospels where the woman takes the flask of ointment and anoints Jesus. And what's the comment that's made immediately? Why did she do this? We could have taken it and sell, sold it and given what? All kinds of money to the poor. Because ointment like this is not just fragrance. It's wealth. It's power. And what Solomon's saying is to have a good name, to have character, is more important than other things that people can see. Now, that sort of seems like a no-brainer, but that runs contrary to everything in the world today. Everything in the world today is about appearance. Had a conversation the other day with someone talking about sneakers, tennis shoes. How a man had been so upset with the violence going on in high schools that he decided to invent or to come up with a pair of proper basketball sneakers that were really cheap. $15, $10. Because in inner cities, kids beat each other up and shoot each other over $80 shoes. And those $80 shoes cost probably about $2.50 to make because the people who make them in Thailand or somewhere off in the Far East get paid, what, a quarter an hour, a dime an hour? But the reason why they're so valuable is because some athlete has his name on them or they're a certain brand or they're the color of the year. You see, it's all externality. That's just one example of the life that we live. We all know people that buy cars not because they run right, but because they look like wealth and power. We're familiar with going through subdivisions where one of the latest things to do with a house is to make a house thin and wide, right? So that it looks big, bigger than it is. This is something that the world goes after. And Solomon says, we don't need to do that. And he presses the point home in another way. He says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, when you look at that, now you're especially confused. You're saying, okay, wait a minute. You're talking about a good name and perfume, and now you're talking about people dying. What does that have to do with each other? It makes the same point, that heart work is more important than outward work. You see, death is something that brings us to think most about life, isn't it? When we hear someone dies, we think about their life and what they've done. And we think about our own life and where we're going. Especially when someone close to us dies. It makes us reflect upon our own mortality. And you see, what Solomon is saying here is better to dwell on character and your inner heart and to think about your purpose in life than to think about something that doesn't really reflect character. You see, at birth, we don't have character. My guess is that Aiden's just starting to develop some character, right? Some of our children are just starting to develop character and traits and habits. But my habits are pretty well set. I'll go out on a limb and say that John's are a little bit more set because he's been at them longer. You see, at birth, there's a sense in which we're a blank slate, not theologically, in terms of soteriology, but in terms of the traits that we get and we have. And what Solomon says is dwell upon inner character. And he presses this point home again. He says, you know, it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. Now, what does he mean there? Should we all, like, go hang around funeral parlors? 
and never have any more suppers after evening service, right? No. He's saying something in Bible language that you all well know. And that is this. It's better to think seriously about life and to take your life seriously and your purpose in life than to waste life trying to drown out what's going on. Better to think about your purpose in life than to try and lose yourself in partying. Paul makes the same point in a different way in Romans 1. He talks about those who rebel against God that try and suppress what God has already told them to drown it out. One example of this that I think of because I'm not mechanically inclined. Can you believe that? I'm not mechanically inclined and I have this temptation that when there's a problem with my car, you know, there's a ping or a little shimmy. You know, it is amazing that you can repair a car with a radio. When I hear that little ping, I just turn the radio up a little louder. And you know what? The ping goes away. Right? Doesn't it? But you see, that's silly, but that's what life is like for most people. They have difficulties in their marriage, so they turn up the volume on their job. They have trouble at work, so they turn up the volume on a vacation. They have trouble with money, so they turn up the volume on television. You see, we're tempted to do that, and Solomon says we can't do that. Better to face life head on and to see that there is real purpose in life. Because you see, mourning and death reminds us that there is an end to all men. He says it's better to have sorrow than laughter. Pop culture reference for today is that Billy Joel is all wet. I'd rather not laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Solomon says the biblical answer is I'd rather cry with the saints than laugh with the sinners. That is the biblical mode of thinking, of thinking eternally of thinking in terms of things that are important. Because you see, sorrow often puts us in a proper frame of mind to enjoy life's blessings. What? You're happy because you're sorrowful? Yes. Many of you have personal experience with that. It's called childbirth. Right? Childbirth is not fun, is it, ladies? even with drugs. But you see, that difficulty, the sleepless nights, the uncomfortable, the uncomfortable sitting and laying, the going in, the being poked with the IVs, all of the things that you have makes the joy of that child in your arms so much greater. Now, I'm not making up this illustration because our Lord Jesus Christ says exactly that in John 16. He says, the joy you experience will be so much greater. It's like a woman who gives birth. And her joy is greater after the last. You see, Solomon says, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And the word there for glad is more than just happy. This isn't, I feel happy, I feel happy. This is, by sadness of heart, the heart is made right. It's put right to look properly at life. Life in perspective. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, where he says that a godly sorrow produces repentance. And there's a difference between a godly sorrow and an ungodly sorrow. Because you see, 
Mourning only lasts for an evening. Sadness lasts for an evening. But joy comes in the morning, the psalmist says. Well, this is a a clear view of the world through seeing significance. But you see, Solomon says there's also real benefit out in the world. Look with me at verse 5. He says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. And he says something to us that we need to hear. You know, none of us likes to be corrected. Do we? Have you ever asked someone a question? How, how do you think I did? What do you think of this thing I built? How did you like supper? Right? What are you waiting for? That's right. That was wonderful. That was one of the best suppers I've ever had. You know, it happens to preachers too. That was a great sermon. I'm tempted by that every time I ask John each week, how do you think Sunday went? Part of me wants me to, to hear gushing praise. But you see, sometimes we need to hear a rebuke to put us back on the path. You all know this with your children, but it's true for yourself as well. We need to be put back on the path. Because you see, notice what this rebuke is designed to do. It is designed to bring about good. It is the rebuke of the wise. Not the rebuke of the fool. And he says, this is better than to hear the songs of the fool. The Bible puts it this way in another place. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You see, God's way of guarding us against sin, against wandering from him, is to put people in our lives to keep us on the path. That's the way of wisdom. You see, the fool's laughter is like thorns under a pot. This is another one of these uh, language issues here. Again, there's, there's a similarity between these two words. One commentator's put it this way. Another way of saying it is, it's a fool's laughter is like nettles under the kettles. You see, it's quick. You ever light thorns? Boy Scouts? Former Boy Scouts? Little brambles and thorns? What happens? They light up quick, don't they? What do you have to have near them? Real wood. Or it goes out. It burns out quick. That's what the laughter of a fool is like. You see, purpose and significance is found through honest correction, not through dishonest praise. There's real benefit, too, in having patience, Solomon says. He says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You see, times of trial come to an end. And so better to see something through to the end than to just think about the beginning. We might put it this way biblically. It is better to end well than to begin well. We must finish strong, not just begin strong. And why is this? It's because if we don't, we get impatient, Solomon says, and impatience leads to anger. It wells up in our hearts It lays up in the bosom of a fool. You see, our impatience is really impatience with God. It's not impatience with our things. It's not impatience with our circumstances. It's impatience with God that he hasn't set things up the way that we think they should be. This is a problem. Well, 
This is the view of the world that Solomon wants us to see. But he presses the point home and says, let me give you a clear view of life. In verse 13, after giving all these proverbs, he says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He says, if you want to have a clear view of life in a sentence, this is it. God is in control. It's a simple sentence, isn't it? But the way we think about that and react to that says a lot about the nature of our heart, doesn't it? To the believer, that sound is like the finest symphony in your ear. God is in control. Of all things, he knows the beginning from the end. No one can oppose him. Look at this. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? The crooked here doesn't make it in the sense of bad or sinful. It just means the obscure things that we see, the difficulties of life, God is in control of. You know, John Piper has what's now becoming a famous saying where he says, don't waste your cancer. See, God's in control of cancer. God's in control of the barren womb. God's in control of the layoff. God's in control of all things. And you see, to the Christian, to the one who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, that means not just that someone powerful is in control, no. It means the great, loving, just God is in control. The one who sacrificed all for me. No one could have my interest at heart better than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one dared to die for me, dared to become sin for me like Jesus did. That's who's in control. But you see, if we don't have that picture, then it becomes one of fear. God's in control. Who's God? Who's God to tell me what to do? I want to have my way. I want to be in charge. And you see, there is found only fear and angst. This is what we must tell others out around us. That it is a good thing that God is in control. And the point can be made very easily. Just like Solomon says, who can make straight what God's made crooked? We might put it in modern language. Which one of you can fix things? And if you can't, why do you want to be in control? You see, only when we see that God is in control are we safe. But it's not just that no one can oppose God. It's all of these circumstances are in God's hand. He says the day of prosperity is in God's hand. The day of adversity is in God's hand. And we are called to see that as a blessing. There's a wonderful hymn called, Whate'er my God ordains is right. And that is the belief of one who is safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. And there's a very practical application of this. 
If our theology says that this is true, that God is in control, that no one can oppose him, no one can make straight what he's made crooked, no one can make crooked what he's made straight, and that God's in charge of the day of mourning and the day of laughter, the day of joy and the day of adversity, then parents, God is in control of your children. It is not your job to save your children. You need to let that go. It's your job to be faithful, to read the scriptures to your children, to pray for and with your children, to remind them of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, to put them in a place where they can avail themselves of the means of grace. But in the final analysis, God is in control, not you. This is something that we are very reluctant to let go, aren't we? We'll let God go with our job. We'll let God go with our finances. We'll let all of these things go to God. But our children, rightly so, are so dear to us. Trust me. In counseling, that is one of the most often said things that I give to parents. And it's freeing. It's liberating. Because they are in the hands of a covenant God. A God who delights in saving families. A God who delights in bringing together, not tearing apart. You see, that's a clear view of life. Now, the opposite is also true. It seems so self-evident. But if God's in control, then man is not in control. And that's what Solomon is saying here by something that may seem odd to you in verses 15 through 18. He says... There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life. He says, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, what's God saying? here? I'm not supposed to be good? I'm not supposed to be bad? I'm supposed to be 50-50? No. What God is saying here is, do not think to make yourself overly righteous. It's not in your control. You can't win God's favor by what you do. You can't make yourself righteous enough to be in control of life. Even your own life. Even your own salvation. You cannot do it. So don't try and be overly righteous. Don't try and outrighteous God. But don't take the way of the world either and be overly wicked and toss it aside. He says, we need to look and see to the one who is in control. Because you see, self-righteousness doesn't give us control. And wickedness doesn't give us control. We see this all the time in our own lives, don't we? Just apply it to your spiritual life. We have two ways of dealing with difficulties. We try and do everything we can to control every minute detail, right? Always say what? Who cares? Let it all happen however it happens. Now that's one thing when you're weeding, or working on a machine, or trying to figure out a math problem. That's... Another thing entirely when you face life that way. Let me see if I can arrange everything in my life to be in control. Or, ah, who cares? Let it all hang out. You see, Solomon says that's not the proper way to look at life. The proper way to look at life is in verse 18. To fear God. And then God will deliver you from both of those things. From self-righteousness and from defeat and despair. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This is Solomon starting to lay that out for us. 
We're not in control. He says it another way. And we need to hear this in America today as conservative Christians in the year 2007. He says, you can't go back to the good old days. He says, you know, you think you can, but you can't. Don't look back. Don't say in verse 10, why are the former days better than these? You see, oftentimes we think that if we could just go back to 1952, 1954, when everybody was good, when Christianity was everywhere, when Ike was in the White House, then life would be perfect. And you see, we forget that there were all kinds of troubles then. There are a lot of ways in which life in 1950 was better than it is today. But there are a lot of ways in which it was worse, too. Not just by technology, by morality. You see, today, it would be rare to find a church where officers of the church stand at the front door and turn people away from worshiping God because of the color of their skin. That happened in the good old days of the 50s. You see, there are no good old days. There is the work that God is doing today in us. That's a clear view of life. So Solomon has laid out for us what the world really looks like. He's sharpening up our spectacles. He's sharpening up what life is to look like. That God is in control and we are not. And then he says, here, now that you're starting to get a clear view, this is something I call a mirror. He holds it up to us. And he says, now that you can see clearly, I want you to see yourself clearly. And the first thing that he says loud and clear is something that we need to hear. He says, we are sinners. He says, you know what? Man is not basically good. We hear that all the time. We hear man is basically good. We hear it from philosophers. We hear it from authors. We hear it from the news media. Anytime there is any tragedy. Anytime there is a tragedy, they focus on some acts of charity and kindness and basically say, well, we know everybody's good. We don't know how this one guy in Blacksburg happened to get this idea to go out and kill people. But everybody else is basically good. Until six months from now, it happens in a different city. And then we, well, everybody's basically good, but this one guy. And we don't think and say, you know, probably 50% of the student body population at Virginia Tech plays regularly or has played regularly some game that involves with murdering and shooting people. Or more than 50% of us are going to see films where violence and death is glorified. You see, we're not basically good. Solomon puts it this way. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Whoops, the Apostle Paul just... Snuck in here, didn't he? Romans 3. No, it's the truth throughout the Bible. There is no one who is so righteous that they don't sin. And Solomon gives it to us in good biblical categories. He says, there's no one who does good, does everything he's supposed to do. And there's no one who doesn't sin. You see how he catches both? Because all of the time, apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are either failing to do what we ought, sins of omission, or 
doing what we should not. Sins of commission. This is true of all of us. From the top to the bottom, from the east to the west. And he presses the point home. He says, you know what? You're really not better than others. This is another thing we try and do to set up a wall between us and God. We say to ourselves, well, you know, we cheat on our income tax, but at least we're not out shooting somebody. Well, maybe I punch somebody, but at least I'm not. And we set up a wall between us and God that says, well, at least I'm better than this person or that person. And so Solomon says, you know, don't take to heart everything you hear, because you're likely to hear someone curse you. And by the way, before you get self-righteous about it, remember two things. The person who's cursing you isn't saying the worst thing he could, because he doesn't know how wicked you are in your heart. I'm not as bad as you think I am. I'm worse. Bad news? That's true of you, too. And he says, you know, we do the same thing. He says, you've cursed someone, too, in the past. So don't think you're better than someone else. You actually deserve worse. And he says, you see, sin is such a horrible evil that in verse 29, he says, I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Look at the way he describes sin. It's perverse. Scheming. It's deliberate. Man seeks out. He sought out many sins. It's universal. First he says man, and then he says what? They. You notice how the Bible uses small words to get something across to us? And it's also, it's inventive. He says many schemes. This is the state of man. We are sinners. But there's something else that Solomon says. He says... We're not what we're supposed to be. Look what verse 29 says. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You know, Solomon has really dug into this issue. Look at verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search and to seek the scheme and to know. He's twisting, turning, looking under every rock, behind every bush, every place, trying to find out, and he says, this I know, God made man upright. This is the view of man from the Bible. Now, we're all familiar, I think, that the Bible is alone in its view of saying that all men, all women, all children are under sin. Whereas every other view says that, well, man is okay. Basically, if he does certain things by himself, he'll be fine. But there's another biblical view that we need to hold on to, and that is the Bible really alone says man was created good and upright. That the best is not something that we are trying to get up to. The best is something that God has done already. You see, we're not evolving up to something good. That's a lie. It's an ancient lie. The Babylonians said that man was created with lies and needed to strive up to some point. That's what the evolutionist believes. But you see, God created man upright. Now, what does that mean in conclusion? 
One commentator put it this way that I think is just pithy, and this is a take-home sentence. He said, because futility was not the first word, it does not need to be the last. You see, God made man upright, and God can remake man upright. You see, the solution to all of this, to us being sinners, to us not being what we are supposed to be, is the cross. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's the work of God in our Redeemer. And you see, that's the answer to chapter 6, verse 12. It's kind of a long-winded answer with some proverbs and some pithy sayings. But the question that Solomon asks is, who knows what is good? And the answer is, God does. He knows. And he has shown you in his son. He has shown you what is good. He has shown you how to be upright. He has shown you how to be what you are supposed to be. He has shown you how to have patience. He has shown you how to listen to a rebuke. He has shown you how to have a good name. He has shown you all of these things in Jesus. You see, all of these questions, all of this meandering, has a very simple answer. It's Jesus. That's what Solomon is pointing us to. That's who Solomon is pointing us to. So let us once again listen to our guide to cast aside hopes and thoughts of redeeming ourselves, of making ourselves self-righteous, of fixing ourselves, and to turn to the one who made us, who made us upright, who created us, and the one who recreates us in the work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can find peace and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would show that to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.